Today's sermon passage is from Matthew 9, verses 9 through 34. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples. And behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, if I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned and seeing her, he said, take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, go away, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went through all the district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them that no one knows about, see that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never has anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisee said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. Thanksgiving. <clears throat> um, I'm pitch hitting for our pastor, Jimmy Mosley, and you're probably thinking, this is the seventh time in a row somebody else has been in that pulpit. And so that is now coming to an end, as uh, LJ mentioned. Uh, Jamie will be back in town later today, I think, and in the office tomorrow. 
and the pulpit next Sunday. But I'm going to uh, take us toward the end of chapter 9, and I call our passage today, Jesus and the Outcasts. We have uh, two elements here where people have been ostracized for one reason or another. Um, One is because of what they do, another is because of some sort of abnormality, physical abnormality. And this was the ancient world's view of social distancing, you might say. Keeping people uh, away from you, ostracizing them, shunning them. But Jesus did not do that. Jesus welcomed them. And we'll see this here in a moment in several places. But before we get into the passage itself, I'd like to address a couple of things uh, in this text. Uh, You'll notice we stopped at verse 34. Um, I think there's an unfortunate chapter division here. And... uh, I'm sure you're aware that uh, chapter divisions and verse divisions are not inspired. So I'm not committing a heresy here. But uh, in verse 35, uh, the subject changes and Jesus moves on and once again begins preaching and teaching and healing. And he says that his people are like sheep without a shepherd. And then he calls on his disciples to pray that the Lord of the harvest would send forth laborers into his harvest. And that is the very next thing Jesus himself does in chapter 10, the commissioning of the 12 and sending them out on a missionary journey. So that last little paragraph actually should go with chapter 10. And what's interesting is that um, what we're looking at now is the end of a major section sandwiched between two of Jesus' five sermons in the book of Matthew. We've already seen the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 through 7, and then the commissioning of the 12 in chapter 10, um, parables of the kingdom are his sermon in chapter 13. And then in chapter 23, we have the denunciation of the Pharisees. And in chapters 24 and 25, we have the Olivet Discourse, so-called because Jesus was on the Mount of Olives at the time. He gave this long discourse on the events leading up to and including his return in glory. And so chapters 8 and 9 here are sandwiched right here between these first two sermons. And Jesus is now having spoken his word about what he expects of his kingdom citizens in the Sermon on the Mount. He's showing who he is by revealing his power. And he's taking on things that no one could handle in those days. Illnesses, diseases, demon possession. People were terrified of these things. In fact, the rabbi said that healing leprosy was equivalent to healing, bringing somebody back from the dead. Because they were both impossible. And yet Jesus does both of those right here in chapters 8 and 9. And another thing I'd like to point out is that It is very clear in the four Gospels that they are going to great pains to indicate that Jesus is doing something new, something big, something dramatic, that the Christ event had global ramifications for everyone. He came to this little nation of Israel, but it wasn't just for them. It was for all of us. And the, the Gospels do this by tying things in Jesus' life 
as a mirror image of things that happened under the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament. For instance, we've already seen the birth of Jesus. After Jesus was born, his life was threatened by Herod, and he goes down to Egypt and comes back to the Promised Land. Who else did that? Father Abraham. Abraham gets to Canaan. There's famine, a threat to his life. He goes down to Egypt. He comes back to the Promised Land. The nation of Israel does it too. Famine in the land at the time of Jacob and his 70 family members. They go down to Egypt where Joseph is, and eventually, four centuries later, they go back to the Promised Land. And so the king is emulating the patriarchs and his people. Also, Moses went up Mount Sinai to get the commandments from God. What did Jesus do in chapters 5 through 7 of Matthew? He went up into a mountain not to receive laws from God, but to give his people his commandments, his followers, his teachings about what it means to be a kingdom citizen. He went up a mountain a second time, as did Moses. Remember when Moses came down the first time, he's the only person who ever broke all ten commandments at the same time. And he had to go, get up, go back up the mountain and get a second edition. When, and when he came down that mountain, his face was shining from being in the presence of the Shekinah glory. Jesus went up into a mountain later, and he was transfigured. His whole body was glowing. His deity was seeping through that veil of flesh. And there was Moses and Elijah. I had somebody in Sunday school recently asked me, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? And I said, well, they were wearing name tags. Either that or Jesus introduced them, Peter, James, John, this is Moses and Elijah. But we see Moses and Elijah again in the life of Jesus. Moses fasted 40 days and nights twice. Elijah, running from Jezebel, fasted for 40 days and nights. And Israel, for 40 years, wandered in the wilderness because of unbelief. What does Jesus do? The Spirit drives him into the wilderness. And the Gospels indicate, especially Mark and Luke, that Jesus was tempted all 40 days by the devil. It wasn't just those last three on the last day. The entire 40 days he was tempted by the devil, and those last three are Satan's last best shot to make Jesus sin. But he remained sinless and perfectly did the Father's will, in contrast to the Israelites. In John 6, Jesus feeds 5,000 men, probably 15 to 20,000 people, with just a handful of fish and bread. And he compares that to his father giving them manna in the wilderness. This was nothing less than a miracle of creation. And he says, I am the bread of life. This bread, they receive the bread you eat now. That's not going to last. You'll get hungry again. The bread I give you will last forever. Myself. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus appointed another group of people, 70 disciples. 
to send on a missionary journey. This is probably a mirror image of Moses appointing 70 elders to help him rule the nation. But Jesus' 70 were to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom. Now, I know some of the, there's a textual tradition that some English versions follow that say 72, but I think the correct reading is 70. And so Jesus, once again, is emulating an event from the Old Testament. And now, the calling of the 12. 12 tribes of Israel, the 12 sons of Jacob, become the progenitors of the nation. What does Jesus do? He calls 12 men to help him form his kingdom. They are the first to proclaim the gospel, the first to proclaim the new covenant in Jesus' blood after Jesus' resurrection. Minus Judas plus Matthias, of course. And so that leads us right into our first point here. There are the, the book of Genesis gives birth narratives for all 12 of the sons of Jacob. The gospel gives us calling narratives for seven of the 12. The other five are just simply mentioned as part of the group. But Matthew's the last one. We see Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Philip and Nathaniel are given in John chapter 1. And uh, Nathaniel, by the way, is the same person as Bartholomew. And so here in chapter 9, verse 9, we have the calling of an outcast. He's a tax collector. Anybody here work for the IRS? If you did, would you admit it? <laughs> Nothing wrong with what the IRS does. That is not exactly what Matthew was doing. Look at verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew. Mark and Luke called him Levi. Sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me, and he rose and followed him. When I first began reading the Bible, the Gospels, you know, I just got the impression that Jesus went up to people out of the blue. They didn't know him. He didn't know them. He said, follow me. And they said, oh, okay. No, they had had access to him. They had seen him. They had heard him. They had seen him perform miracles. In fact, this is the man that wrote the Gospel of Matthew we're going through right now. No doubt he was there and heard the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus knew him. He knew Jesus. And yet he had this outcast job. Why was being a tax collector so bad? Because they considered, the Israelites considered them traitors. They were mean. They were bullies. They charged you more than they really had to because that's how they got paid. So the more they charged you, the more money they could keep. They were deceitful. And we know from Luke 19 where Zacchaeus, also a tax collector, after he comes to faith in Jesus, he decides, I've got to make good on all these people I cheated in the past. Jesus simply says, follow me, and Matthew walks away from it. That's point number one. I forgot to say that. A disreputable disciple. Bad reputation. But he got on board real quick. Now, Matthew doesn't say this about himself. But Mark and Luke tell us that the next few verses take place in Matthew's home. 
And this is part two. Party time. Matthew throws a party. And he has two purposes for this. So notice verse uh, 10. Jesus reclined at a table in the house, Matthew's house. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came over reclining with Jesus and his disciples. Tax collectors and sinners. Put that in quotation marks because that's the way they referred to people with horrible reputation. Like tax collectors and prostitutes and thieves. What are you doing there, Jesus? No self-respecting rabbi at that time would be at a party like this. But that's the very people Jesus came to reach. And Jesus says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. You have to realize you're sick before you want to be made well. You have to realize you're a sinner before you, real, before you admit that you need to be saved. These self-righteous Pharisees were neither. They were sick. They were self-righteous, and they didn't know it. And then Jesus quotes Hosea 6.6 6, right there in verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's in the context of God rebuking the Israelites for keeping these rituals of the law of Moses about sacrifices, the sacrificial system, and caring nothing about the weightier matters of the law, as Jesus called them. Mercy, compassion, love, loyalty. About 31 years ago, well, it was exactly 31 years ago. I remember now because it was right after my son Timothy was born in September of 91. We were living in Memphis. My wife, Roberta, and I had just uh, joined a really small church, a church plant. We got there just four or five months after it started. This was in uh, East Memphis. And I don't remember this couple's name, but I just call them John and Mary. John and Mary came into our church, and they looked like they had just arrived from Woodstock. Now, if you're not old enough to know what that is, in August of 1969, that was the big hippie party in upstate New York with all the music and the drugs and other things I won't mention that lasted four or five days. And they looked like they just got back from there. But we welcomed them with open arms. We shared the gospel with them. And they kept coming. And they kept coming. And within just a few weeks, they both came to know Jesus. It was wonderful to see this. But there's a tragedy that happened before that. John and Mary told us that they had been to four other churches before they came to ours. And after the service, people came to them and said, we don't want you here. Don't come back. You don't fit in. How's that for a strategy for the Great Commission? Go away. 
This is what Jesus wants us to do, what he does right here. These are the very people that Jesus wanted to reach. This is who we should reach. We should welcome anybody that walks in that door with open arms. And this leads then to another complaint about Jesus and his disciples, about the Pharisees, the legalists of the day. Number three, to fast or not to fast? Not exactly Shakespeare, but close enough. Look in verse 14. Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus uses this analogy about the, a wedding. This is not a, a wedding is not a time for mourning. It's a time for rejoicing. The day will come when you will mourn, but that will only be brief. And he's talking about the time between his death and resurrection. The disciples were very confused, very upset, very depressed. But then the resurrection and everything changed and everything is joy from then on. And Jesus says, be careful about mixing the old and the new. Now, Michael Kelly, six weeks ago, touched on this fasting issue in the Sermon on the Mount. So let me just add kind of a postscript here. Uh, the background of the Day of Atonement, of course, is Leviticus 16 where the one day the Israelites were commanded to fast. Now, you know that legalists aren't going to leave that alone. They're going to expand it because if it's good for one day of the year, it's going to be good for two or two a month or two a week. Remember the Pharisee that boasted, I fast twice a week in Jesus' parable? They fasted every Tuesday and Thursday. And they looked down their noses at those who didn't. Fasting. It has to have a spiritual purpose, or it's really not fasting, though. If you're going to abstain from food for a, one meal or a day, don't do it because you're not hungry, or because you're sick, or you're too busy, or because you forgot to go to the grocery store. That's not spiritual fasting. There's a purpose. It's supposed to focus us on God. Use that time that you would be using for, fat, for eating to fast and be with the Lord. And by all means, tell your spouse. I mean, if she cooks a great meal, and don't say, oh, by the way, I'm going to fast. That's a bad idea. Bad idea. And also consult your doctor, just to be practical. But Jesus likens this, this expansion of the law, to new wine and old wine skins. It's a mixing of two things that shouldn't be mixed. Jesus says there's going to come a day when there's going to be rejoicing. You know, the New Testament, once you get past... Up to the day of Pentecost, fasting is only mentioned a couple of times elsewhere. And that's in the book of Acts, and it's not mandated, and it isn't mentioned anywhere in the epistles. Now, I'm not saying it's not a good idea. I'm saying it can be a very good thing. It simply isn't commanded. And always be sure 
that you do it for the proper purpose and wisely. But the mixing here that Jesus is talking about is trying to pour the old, the new covenant into the old covenant. What's going to happen? The new wine is going to expand and burst, and we both will be ruined. This is something that the Christian church has struggled with for 2,000 years. How to deal with the law of Moses in the Christian church. One of the most blatant abuses of this occurred in colonial America. I recently read a book called The Witches, Suspicion, Betrayal, and Hysteria in 1692 Salem. Now, you might know a little bit about this. Most people are aware of this event. But do not think of this uh, colonial Salem, Massachusetts as a hotbed of the occult. That is not what was going on at all. These were Christian people, people who believed in Scripture and quoted Scripture constantly to one another. Almost to a person, the people in Salem were reformed in their theology. They were Puritans. What did they do? Rumors about witchcraft began, and they were fully aware of Exodus 22.8. You will not allow a witch to live. And the church became the state, arrested, tried, and executed 14 women and five men for witchcraft. What is the church supposed to be doing? Reaching them with the gospel, not executing them. This is what happens when you pour new wine into old wineskins. You destroy both, Jesus says. And then we come to another aspect of the outcasts. Roman number four, the dead and the dying healed. The dead, of course, is a reference to this little girl. And the dying is a woman who has an unusual physical problem. This is in verses 18 to 26. This is dealing with what the Old Testament calls unclean. When you read the Old Testament, you see this all over the place, especially in the law of Moses. Don't, don't think of unclean as dirty. Unclean refers to being in an abnormal state physically. And sometimes this state of uncleanness can last a long time. Sometimes it can be very brief. Sometimes the remedy is very simple, like washing your hands or taking a bath. A dead body is unclean. If you touch it, you become unclean. A woman during her monthly time is unclean. That's what happens right here with this woman. She has an abnormal cycle. It's like it never ends. And therefore, she is in a constant state of perpetual 
uncleanness, meaning she cannot enter into worship with others in Israel. She doesn't have access to the central sanctuary, and according to Pharisaic law, she doesn't have access to the synagogue either. What does Jesus do? He takes on these elements of the clean and unclean and anticipates the time when those are obsolete. He ends their uncleanness and permanently ends those distinctions in the new covenant for his people today. Jesus has already done this before. In Mark chapter 7, Mark says, In this way, Jesus declared all foods clean. You want to see a list of unclean food? Leviticus 11. Grasshoppers are clean, by the way. And crickets. And down in Mississippi, where I grew up, we like them deep fried. So if y'all want to join us for lunch, just, just let me know. Jesus came to end all that. And this is the very point the Apostle Paul makes, both in 1 Corinthians 8 and Romans 14. Paul says, I know and am convinced of the Lord that there is nothing unclean of itself. For 15 centuries they had been doing this. Something big was happening. Jesus was changing how the people of God relate to God. Not through the law anymore, but through the new covenant. For 15 centuries they've been doing this. Took a while for Peter to catch on. There in Acts chapter 10, God tries to feed him three times. Here, Peter, eat. Not me. I'm not, I've never eaten unclean food before. Don't call something unclean that I have called clean, Peter. What does this woman do? She sees Jesus. She has heard about Jesus. She's seen Jesus. She has absolutely no doubt that he can heal her. Luke tells us that she's been to doctor after doctor after doctor who no doubt took advantage of her and just took her money knowing they couldn't help her, and now she was broke. She's been going on for 12 years, Luke says. And she's thinking, I don't have to have him touch me. I don't have to touch him. I don't even have to touch his cloak. All I have to do is touch the very tassels of his cloak. And what she's referring to here is what the law of Moses tells every male Jew to do, to wear a cloak and have four tassels on them to write, to remember the law of Moses when they see them on other people. All I have to do is crawl up there and grab one little tassel and I'll be healed. She was that convinced. Her faith was that strong. And sure enough, Jesus says, your faith has healed you. The uncleanness was gone, anticipating the time when that distinction would no longer exist at all. In um, verse 27, we have another healing. 
two blind men healed, verses 27 to 31. There was a stigma about being blind just as it was about being a tax collector. And this is based on Leviticus 21, which says that the descendants of Levi through Aaron were the priests. The priests who were blind or lame could not serve in the sanctuary. Now, it would have been very hard, of course, and this might even be a practical reason for someone who was lame or someone who was blind to be able to do all that a priest had to do, take this animal and slit its throat and drain all the blood and put it on an altar of fire. Remember, think of a bronze altar as a Texas-sized grill. You've got the right idea. They could not come to the central sanctuary. And because of that, this stigma over the centuries attached to blind people, you must have done something wrong. God's punishing you. Remember what the disciples said in John 9? They were walking down the road, saw a blind man, and they just casually been blind from birth. And they just casually said, who sinned, his parents or him? Jesus said, neither. We must not presume to be able to interpret the providence of God so easily. And notice what they say to him, son of David. Now here's irony for you. The blind can see that Jesus is the Messiah. The Pharisees are staring him in the face and can't see it. Like the woman they have no doubt that Jesus can heal them. They haven't seen him do anything. They've heard about him. But when they call his name, they don't say, Jesus, give me my sight. They say, Son of David, give me my sight. And Jesus does so, so easily, instantly. And then finally, Point number six, a dumbness-causing demon exercised. Now, that's a handful, I know. I was trying to get it all in there. Verses 32 to 34. Twenty times in the New Testament, a demon is called an unclean spirit. Why unclean? Here's uncleanness again. They're unclean because they are in an abnormal state, too. Jude says that there are angels who did not keep their first estate, their first status. That is, holy angels, the way God created them. They followed Satan and rebelled against God, and their doom was forever sealed in the lake of fire at that very moment. And in the meantime, until final judgment, they could try to destroy the works of God and the people of God. They are not in the state that they should be. Sin destroyed them. They're unclean spirits. Notice what Jesus does. Verse, um, verses 32 to 34. As they were going away, behold, the demon-possessed man who was more mute was brought to him. Now, mute simply means he's unable to speak, of course. Um, 
think the older, older verses use the word dumb. It's the same idea. The New Testament does not teach that Ill, all illnesses are caused by demons. In fact, most are not caused by demons. But it does teach that some are, and when the demon is removed, the illness comes to an end. Now, we've already seen one instance of this at the end of chapter uh, 8. Excuse me, chapter 9. No, I was right the first time, chapter 8. Jesus cast out a demon, a crazy man, living in tombs, all chains, couldn't hold him, out of his mind. Once the demon was gone, he was a normal person. And here, Jesus cast out a demon, but this time the Pharisees were watching This is how horrible unbelief can be. It doesn't matter what kind of evidence you have in front of you, you will come up with some stupid, lame excuse to explain it away. That's what the Pharisees do here. Notice, Jesus cast out the demon, and this mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons. As my granddaughter Lily would say, are you seriously? <laughs> That's the best you can do? Satan? Casting out Satan? Now Matthew doesn't record a response by Jesus here. Maybe he didn't respond at all, but he does later. Matthew chapter 12, this happens again. And this time Jesus responds and it shows how ridiculous and illogical their argument is. Is Satan going to cast out Satan? If he does, his kingdom is going to be destroyed. Satan's not in the business of destroying himself. It's also in that passage that we have the very difficult saying of Jesus about the unforgivable sin. And I'm going to leave it in the capable hands of my pastor to deal with that when we get, he gets to chapter 12. You know, the gospel is for everyone. Redeemer, Redeemer Church, what would we do if a John and Mary walked in that back door? If a witch walked in that door, if someone demon-possessed walked in that door, I hope we would welcome them with open arms and sit them down and share Jesus and bring them to faith in him. Because we at one time needed him, Jesus, just as badly as they do. It's at bottom a sin problem for all of us. And Jesus is the only solution. We should not, the church is not in the business of being the civil government, of arresting people, of executing people, of passing our own laws. Jesus says nothing about that. The epistles say nothing about that. We are a kingdom of priests, an invisible, global 
kingdom, changing people through the power of the gospel. That's what we're here for. Andy, you guys come on up. I wonder, you know, in a crowd this large, I know, I think it's safe to assume that not everybody here knows Jesus. <coughs> I hope that will be true today for you if you do not know Jesus. Now, we're going to take the Lord's Supper here in a moment. The night before Jesus was crucified, he did something brand new. For 15 centuries, they had been keeping the Passover. Jesus, keeping the Passover with his disciples, turned the Last Supper into the Lord's Supper. So that his people, for the last 2,000 years, have looked back not toward the Exodus, but to the crucifixion. God's greatest act ever of redemption. And that's what we're going to do in a moment. Guys, um... Passing out the elements, come on. In a moment, they'll pass out the elements, and I'll come back, and we'll take the Lord's Supper together. <clears throat>